Words are the carriers of meaning, the containers communicating our inner identity. By thoughts transposed into words, we give voice to meaning. And by our words, we define ourselves, others, and reality as a whole. But what if we're unsure of what reality is? What is real? How can we know? When words cease to describe something we know is real, they lose their meaning. Words are broken. One thing we're sure of is that we use reason. We have rationality. We think. When it comes down to it, all else can be doubted. So if reason is the only sure thing, we conclude that reason is supreme. But when reason stands alone, what becomes of love, justice, or goodness? Words which only have meaning when connected to a reality. Reason finds no such reality. Reason is broken. We once believed the universe was controlled by a mind. But where words have no weight and reason finds no reality, the universe can have no underpinning. Chance. Blind, pitiless indifference. Meaningless men and women making their way through the cold emptiness. Broken. And yet we hunger, thirst, cry, love, long for the brokenness to come untrue. We rebel against reason by our hope. To love, justice, and goodness we unreasonably cling. We desire for their higher reality to invade the empty. In the depth of our being, we desire meaning, wholeness, restoration of what once was and should now be. We grasp, and it eludes our capture. But what if? What if the desires we think are pointless point to the reality that we're here for? What if our thirst points to water? What if our hunger points to food? What if our brokenness points to the hope of restoration? A reality behind the words, a reasoner behind the reason, a mind behind the universe, the object of our ultimate desire going from infinite to intimate. What if the logos were in our midst? Ask yourself, what is Christmas really about? Good morning. So that's a video that I made a couple years ago uh, with the residents of Battelle uh, community that some of you are aware of. And um, you may be sitting there thinking, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Uh, also, you may have noticed the reading from John 1 is not a conventional Christmas text. Um, it's all down to our, the beginning of our Advent series, and the title is, 
the Christmas I never knew. Usually, Christmas texts are taken from Matthew or from Luke or maybe Isaiah, uh, but we don't usually turn to John because we don't generally think John includes a Christmas narrative. But actually, all of the Gospels deal with the same reality of Jesus' coming into the world, but from different perspectives. So where Mark begins with uh, looking at John the Baptist's ministry, Luke zooms out a bit and looks at Jesus' birth. Matthew zooms back even further to show Jesus' ancestry and how he fits into the history of Israel through his genealogy. But John zooms all the way back before time to when there was nothing but God. And that's why he begins what we read in John 1 with those famous words from Genesis, in the beginning. So you could call John 1 the cosmic Christmas. And John's perspective, I think, is so important precisely because that tight focus view of Christmas that we get in Matthew and Luke has become overly familiar. And when something's overly familiar, when it becomes part of just the cultural fabric, it's very easy to overlook what's right in front of you. Just kind of like natives to a city like Prague become a bit numb to the beauty that's around them. The same beauty that you walk past every day and pay no attention to, millions of visitors come every year and stop and gawk with awe and take photos. (laughs) So, I know that even complaining that we've lost the meaning of Christmas has become kind of a new Christmas tradition in itself. Uh, John's perspective that we get here does far more than just that. It's not just that the culture around uh, often loses the significance of Christmas, but Christians are even apt to forget the wider view of Christmas that John offers. John's view of Christmas, it challenges our concept of who God is, our categories of sacred and secular, and as the video began to discuss, it points to the moment where our deepest longings as human beings, the source of those longings, stepped into history when the infinite became intimate. So, we'll begin by just starting with the prologue. Um, This is the the cosmic Christmas. Uh, These first 18 verses of John are some of the most densely, uh, richly packed verses in the whole Bible. It's full of different uh, meanings and allusions. And the first thing that John focuses in on is something called the Word. In Greek, it's the logos. And that's what the video was, was, uh, was looking at. John was writing his gospel as a Jew, but within a predominantly Greek culture. And that word logos, he chooses very, very intentionally, very deliberately, because it was loaded with meaning, both for Jews and for Greeks. There was three primary meanings. First of all, uh, a Jew reading John's gospel, 
when he saw the word logos, would have immediately thought of the word, God's word. And the Jews saw God's word as God's action in history. The very way that God created everything. The way that God accomplished his will was by speaking his word. In Genesis, when God created the universe, he said, let there be. It was through his word that um, everything was created. And so God's words were his action in history. Just like our thoughts are our power within our own minds. His words were his power in history. But a Greek reader of John's gospel would have known that logos, uh, more than also in uh, God's words, it meant human words. It was the human language, the words that we use to shape our reality, to shape our understanding, how to describe the world around us. And beyond that, it referred to reason itself. The capacity to reason, that's why we get our word logic from logos. Um, Reason is what we use to develop an accurate understanding of reality. Also to the Greeks, logos referred to what was ultimately the source of our reason, which was a divine reason the mind which governed the universe. Uh, The Stoics believed that uh, there was a mind, an eternal, impersonal force that held everything together. And so logos contained all these different meanings. And in those first five verses, John is building bridges to his audience, to Jews and to Greeks. But I think even if we turn to our own day, the idea of the logos continues to touch on our deepest concerns and anxieties. So in terms of logos as word, in the scientific age, we recognize that the universe isn't just filled with matter, but it's filled with information. In fact, scientists, some scientists are willing to say that information may be the basis of reality. It's fascinating. Um, So that's the sciences on the one hand, but on the other hand, the past century of the humanities, philosophy and uh, literary criticism has all been geared towards saying that language essentially has no fixed meaning. That there is no rock-solid truth to give words a fixed meaning. And so that's why, in our day, words are broken. In terms of logos as reason, Our culture has come to believe that reason is the supreme thing. It's the one thing that we can really be sure of. That's why Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Everything else can be doubted according to that way of thinking. And so if that's the case, then not only is the meaning of words like love, justice, goodness, evil even, not not only is the meaning challenged, but it says essentially those things aren't even real. If the words don't stand for something, then they come into doubt. Human reason alone cannot give a basis for those things. And so reason is broken. And in terms of logos as the divine mind holding everything together, well, if the only real thing is the material world, 
and it means our words have no meaning, our search for meaning is just a waste of time. Reality, it's not only impersonal, as the Greeks believed, it's absurd. Ultimately, it means humanity is meaningless. Even though that's the story that has been developing in all the different ways in our, in our culture in the past 100 years, maybe 200 years, it's interesting to me that there's something in us that still can't get away from searching. We still believe that words do have meaning, or else why would we try and discredit words by using words? Yeah? <laughs> we still believe in justice and love and goodness and even evil, even though reason alone can't give us a basis for them. We assume their reality in the way we live our lives, in everything that we do and say. And so even though we deny a divine mind as a culture, we can't have what we can't act. We can't help but act as if it were real. Because only if there's a divine mind can any of those things have meaning or reality. We deny it with our lips as a culture, but we affirm it with the way we love our lives. We can't help but live as if there really is meaning, purpose, and morality. The story of the human condition is humanity's search for the source of those longings. There seems to be this infinite hole in ourselves that nothing on earth is able to satisfy. We recognize that we're finite, we're limited, but somehow we long for the infinite, the unlimited that we come from. Kierkegaard, uh, uh, the Danish philosopher, he diagnosed that as the source of humanity's despair in his book, The Sickness Unto Death. He said, when the finite is disconnected from the infinite, it loses all meaning, and that can only lead to despair because when you cut yourself off from the source of life, what else can there be but death? When you cut yourself off from the source of light, what else can there be but darkness. And so the Jews searched for the source in God's word. The Greeks searched for the source in God's creation. Humanity is searching for God. But the logos, the word, it's inconceivable. We can't lift our minds up to be able to reach it. We can't reach up to God. And the incredible thing about this passage is how John touches on all these different meanings that were present in his culture and still present today. He touches on all those longings and builds a bridge and then goes on to show them how the reality far exceeds their wildest expectations. To a longing world, he says, what if those desires that everyone finds within themselves? What if those desires aren't absurd, but they're signs pointing towards the source of fulfillment? John writes his book as a witness 
that the word of God, the logos, the ground of reason, the sustaining force behind the universe, personally stepped into history. The inconceivable logos conceived in a virgin's womb. The infinite had become intimate. John's good news is that man isn't only searching for God, but that God was searching for man. And I think his view of Christmas is just as utterly shocking and uh, offensive as it was 2,000 years ago, both to the secular mind and to the religious mind. The only one that can grasp it is the one who receives it as a gift. Saying that the Logos had been born, it was shocking and offensive, uh, first of all, because it was unlike any other birth in history. But it's also shocking and offensive because John is saying it is just like every other birth in history. So first of all, John is saying it's unlike any other birth in history. He says the Logos existed before creation, in the beginning, with God. And somehow the Logos also was God himself. He's saying the Logos is God's self-awareness, God's self-image, his thought, his reason. So the Logos is part of God himself. And the Logos is eternal because there's no time where God existed without self-awareness, without reason, without thought. And yet the Logos is somehow also distinguishable from God. It's with God. Just as your thoughts and your self-awareness are part of you, but they're also somehow distinguishable from you. They're also with you. And the Logos isn't just an it. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. He was with God. And that with in the Greek is always used uh, to, to denote some sort of relationship. It's an, is, there's an intimacy involved. The Logos is part of God. It's also with God. It's the very power that created the universe and sustains it. He, the Logos, is the word, is the life from which all life springs, from which light comes and gives light to all. In other words, John's saying, ultimate reality is a person. Ultimate reality is an infinite person. That is a profound description of what Christians through the centuries have called the Trinity. The God who's uh, too many to be one and too one to be many. The good news is that this is the infinite word becoming flesh. Dwelling among us. Christmas is the author of the universe writing himself into the story. And so it's unlike any other birth in history. But the other half of John's good news 
is that this particular birth was also just like every other birth in history. The infinite stepped down and became intimate. Ultimate reality became a finite person, a real flesh and blood human being, subject to all the same frailties and uh, inconveniences and embarrassments as we are. The infinite was incarnated, made flesh, made into skin and bones and organs and emotions. A real human being, born in the same way as every other human being has been born and will be born. Uh, John is saying the word isn't only fully God, but he's fully human. Jesus had a human name, a human ancestry. He had a mother, brothers, sisters. He was Jewish. He had a childhood. He grew physically. He grew mentally. He learned. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had a job. (laughs) He had friends. He celebrated holidays. He traveled. He went to parties. He obeyed God. And he suffered. And he died. All things that only a real flesh and blood human person can do. And so this was a birth that was unlike any other, and yet it was a birth that was just like every other birth. And John writes as somebody who knew this person, who saw him, who ate with him, who spent three years in apprenticeship to him as his student. But John was writing as part of a long line of prophets, of uh, people of God looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise. A promise that had been hoped for and looked forward to for centuries. Moses had made hints about it. King David had prophesied about it. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, many others. In fact, 300 prophecies about this one that was going to come. And little by little, the people of God began to understand this isn't only a human savior that's going to come, but as you read by the end of the Old Testament, it was clear, this is God himself who's going to step in and rescue us. And now John says, the last man in line, John the Baptist, is saying, what you've been waiting for for centuries is now. He stood in the middle of Palestine, a real place, at a datable time, and said, this had actually happened. The light had come. God had come, just as he'd promised. And so Advent, that period of of waiting and building expectation, it's a reflection, a pale reflection of that centuries-long waiting of fulfillment for God's promise. And so the light, the word, the one that had created everything and held everything together was stepping into the world that he created. But how did the world respond? The author stepped into the novel and the characters didn't recognize him and those that did rejected him. 
even the people that God had entrusted to be his representatives, the, one that were, the ones that were supposed to make him known to the world, didn't recognize the king when he arrived. John says they did not receive him. And so the whole world was in expectation of this event. But when it finally came, it went by almost unnoticed. So why was that? Why even today does the the center and the, the meaning of Christmas continue to be overlooked even though Christmas is celebrated all around the world? I think it's because the reality of what Christmas is continues to be shocking and even offensive, both to the secular mind and the religious mind. First of all, the fact that Christmas would celebrate a completely unique birth, it's utterly offensive to the secular mind. Because the secular mind wants to show that God is just another product of the world, made up and dreamed up by humanity, another object created by the hand of humanity. In other words, God is completely earthly. God is completely part of this world. He's mundane. Nothing particularly glorious in him, nothing particularly true in any ultimate sense. And there's certainly no need for the grace that John says he's full of because sin is just an outdated concept. The secular mind wants a completely human Jesus. Because a baby in a manger doesn't require obedience. This was just another birth. But on the opposite side, the fact that Christmas would celebrate a birth that's just like any other birth is offensive to the, to, to the religious mind. That's what the religious mind can't tolerate. It's an utter embarrassment. What do I mean by that? The religious mind maintains the idea that the spiritual is good and the physical is evil. The religious mind would rather prefer, uh, would prefer reality without the messiness of people. <laughs> so we could focus just on the, on, the, on the high things, on the spiritual things, on the sublime things. In the incarnation... The infinitely sublime, the heavenly, became intimately mundane, the earthly. The creator of the universe became the most helpless, obnoxious, smelly, annoyingly loud thing, (laughs) a newborn baby. The incarnation is God getting his hands dirty. The incarnation forces us to get our hands dirty, to not only look at the heavenly and the sublime, but to look at the mundane, to look at the earthly, the despised, the dirty, in order to redeem it. Humanity is 
this fusion between the heavenly and the earthly. We're just a walking bag of contradictions when you look at us. Uh, humanity, at once, we, we're the, the, the crown of creation. We have the highest thoughts. We do the most incredible things. And yet, we're also the biggest thorn of creation. We create the most evil and suffering on earth. Humanity is this walking contradiction until the incarnation. Jesus offers us the perfect picture of a redeemed humanity where full divinity is on display and full humanity is restored. The image of God in the flesh and the image of man fully restored to his potential, reflecting God. But the religious mind, whether it's uh, um, the, the Jews in John's time or uh, professing Christians today with the religious mindset, we'd prefer a God who doesn't stain himself with the world so that one day we could just escape the world and all the, 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 the difficulty and suffering. But the incarnation says God does us, doesn't want us to escape the world. God wants us to redeem the world. And so the incarnation has huge implications for our engagement with culture. Culture is the product of human life on the world. Culture is not evil. It's not even neutral. In fact, culture is a good thing that God created and commanded. He told Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply and subdue the earth. That's the, the command to create culture. Christmas preaches to us, don't get rid of the human. Don't get rid of culture. Redeem it. Baptize it. Um, I was thinking about this, especially because I know there's, there's a lot of people, and anytime you type in Christmas to a YouTube search bar, you're going to get 150 videos about the real pagan truth about Christmas. If it, just try it. You don't have to watch them, but you, you know, it's a waste of your time. But trust me, this happens. Did you know that Christmas is really a pagan thing? Do you, do you know where Christmas trees come from and mistletoe comes from and Yule logs and the songs? Do you know where that comes from? That's all pre-Christian. That's all pagan. And there is so much in the European uh, celebration of Christmas that is pre-Christian. Um, but Christmas represents the redemption of human culture. Those things don't, they're not the essence of Christmas. That is the expression uh, it's, it's using certain parts of human culture. Actually, the church decided to put Christmas in December to replace, to baptize, to redeem those festivals of that time of year. Christmas shows us that faith, our faith applies to all cultures. Celebrating the good, redeeming what is redeemable, but also going beyond all cultures. 
Christmas shows us that we have to maintain the sublime. We have to maintain the heavenly and the earthly and the mundane because all of it belongs to God. And he is redeeming all of it. And we're a part of that redemption. We look around at the world, we look at the mundane, and we feel like we should escape it. We want to escape it. And it's broken, but God calls us to redeem it. And we can't redeem it if we deny it. And actually, you know, as a, as a Christian artist, an artist uh, who is a Christian and expresses who I am through the art that I make, um, this is what I realize is the problem with a lot of Christian art, is that it neglects the reality of the earthly just, look, just to look at the heavenly. Rather than facing up to the reality around us, we want to uh, just focus on the spiritual. But actually, we're supposed to enflesh, we're supposed to incarnate um, the reality around us so that we can redeem it. And flesh uh, the reality with all its messiness, just like Jesus did in becoming flesh around us. And so, because Jesus entered that messiness and his birth was like every other birth in history, it means we can have hope. That cosmic view of Christmas that John offers, it shows us why Christmas offers an unshakable hope. The infinite becoming intimate. A birth like no other, which makes it offensive to the secular mind. A birth like all others, which is an embarrassment to the religious mind. And now John says in verse 12, that for everyone who receives this word, this one birth, into our life becomes the source of many births into God's life. Not only did Jesus enter human birth to come into our story, but he did it so that we could enter into his life. That's the heart of the passage, that gift of new birth in him. Uh, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So at the center of Christmas is one particular gift. The gift of the right to become a child of God. And everything hinges on how we receive that gift. We don't become children of God just through natural birth as the world would believe. We don't become ch children of God through our own decisions as the religious mind would believe. We become children of God purely by his gift. And a gift can only be received. You can't earn a gift. You can't take a gift. You can only receive a gift. If anyone will recognize who Jesus is, that he alone is able to fulfill their deepest desires. They can receive that gift of a new birth into God's family. The good news 
is that the deepest longings of the human heart, they have an end. They have a goal in the infinite God. And that that infinite God stepped into our story so that he could become intimate. The one that our hearts long to reach for reached out to us. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas offers an unshakable hope to those that receive that gift. To receive the gift, to, to receive Jesus, it's to live in obedience and submission to him because you recognize he is God. He's the infinite God. And it means you love and you trust him. You put your hope and all your longing and desire on him because he made himself intimate to you. That's how the life that was the light of humanity that John says, that's how that life is shared with us. And we become children of light as Jesus is. So thank God that Jesus became just like us, that his birth was just like any other birth because God was willing to enter into our world to become one of us so he could share his life with us. But thank God that Jesus is also not just like us, but that he is God in the flesh. The light that shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. And it's not only that it will not, it cannot. Light uh, cannot be overcome with darkness because darkness is not a thing. Darkness is, an, is the absence of light. When the light comes, the darkness has no choice but to flee. There is nothing that can overcome the light of Christ. That's the power of Jesus. That's the story of Christmas. If Jesus, the Word of God, the Logos, in him, our words find meaning. Our reason has a foundation. The universe is the reality of a person, a God who is love, who created the world and in, in whose image we're made. The infinite becoming intimate. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were willing as the infinite God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the root of our meaning and purpose, love, goodness, truth. Lord, that you were willing to step into history, to become intimate with humanity so that we could share in your life. Lord, thank you that your birth was unlike any other birth, that it was also just like every other birth because we know that you can represent us, but you are also undefeatable 
And we have a hope that nothing can touch in you. Thank you that your light is invincible. And that's what's symbolized in this uh, season of light of Christmas, Lord. So we pray that as we move forward in Advent, in that expectation uh, of that celebration of your birth, Lord, that we would be able to stand in awe of what Christmas means. That it wouldn't be overtaken just by the, uh, the, the um, humdrum <laughs> repetition of year after year, Lord, but that we would be continually awed by what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.